This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Right now, uh, a, a serious situation happening in, in Brantford. Parts of Brantford are under evacuation warning due to flooding. And uh, it's just one of those scenarios that comes up this time of the year and all of a sudden, boom, everybody's got to react. Let's bring in Greg Martin, uh, Ward 3 Counselor for the City of Brantford, and is with us now. Greg, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure. So give us an update, Greg. What's happening? What, what state is Brantford right now? Well, we're evacuating the floodplain areas of the city. Uh, we have a system of dikes, but unfortunately the river's up near the top of the dikes and we're expecting a surge coming down from Cambridge because their ice jam just broke up a while ago, and that's going to hit us around 2 o'clock this afternoon. So, in a sense, this is predictable, I guess. You can you can monitor what's going on and, and, and as best you can keep people in, uh, aware of what's going on. Well, yeah, this is a problem that's been building for some time. The, in, the warm weather and all the snow that we had all melting, as well as the rain, increases the flows in the river and we've had an ice jam in Brantford for a little over a week now and the river has been quite high in certain areas with all the rain and snow melt it's aggravated the situation and now that the ice jam that was in Cambridge has broken up we're getting a big surge from that so we know hours ahead of time that that surge is coming through about two o'clock how much it's going to come up over the dikes and how bad the flooding is going to be we won't know till it happens but we're in for a very serious situation. Now, uh, you said this initial ice jam uh, up in Cambridge. How far down the river will this affect uh, uh, property? Well, the surge will go right down to the lake eventually. It's, uh, and, it's be just as, and just be as, as harmful all the way down, or does it sort of dissipate on the way down? It depends on the areas. In Brantford, the, the dikes are fairly close on either side, so it creates a bottleneck, which is part of our problem. In areas where it's got wide open farmers' fields just beside the river, it can flood into those larger areas and not raise as high, so it's not as serious a problem. How concerned are you about this and what may happen this, this later on this afternoon? Well, we've evacuated several sections of the city in, in the process of making sure that everyone is out of those areas. We have had bad, bad floods in Brantford years ago. Back in the 70s, there was a really bad flood. Uh, since then, we've installed the dikes. So this is the first time we've had a, a situation where it's going to actually come up over the dikes. So this is a really bad situation for us. So this is a test for the new system? Well, it's it's pushing the limits on the new system. We've had lots of tests where it worked just fine previously. Right. And so uh, can you tell us the areas specifically that are affected? Yeah, Homedale and the, the old section of West Brant, as well as all of Eagle Place, are being evacuated. Hmm. And how many people, roughly, or houses are we talking about there? Uh, I'm not sure. I think Hydro was saying that they've had to shut down uh, to about 40, no, sorry, 400 homes, and Union Gas has shut off a bigger area because of the, the limits on where their valves are. So the precautions have been taking to shut down utilities into the area because when a, a home gets flooded, obviously we don't want the hydro shorting out and, and creating a fire because it's going to be very difficult for trucks to get into the area with all the water. So there's a there's a lot of ramifications in this, just to, over and above just getting people out of there. Absolutely, and we've been working on this since uh, 5.30 this morning. Uh, the mayor went into the emergency center and, and they've been, things were already started at that point. Uh, 10.30, he declared a state of emergency in, in Brantford. 
and uh, we're just bracing for when the surge comes down from Cambridge and hopefully the, uh, the flooding isn't too bad into those areas but we've evacuated those areas as a precaution hoping that uh, it's not a necessary thing but unfortunately I think it, it probably will be. How long do you expect this surge to last? How long before things would start to uh, subside? Any idea? Well, the surge will be between an hour and two hours, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of damage can be done in that time. It depends yeah. on how much water flows over the dikes into the various areas because the, the river is so high that if the w- water does come over the dikes, there isn't anywhere for that water to drain. So it's, it's going to be just filling up those neighborhoods until the surge passes, and then we can work on starting to drain the water. Can you monitor this from the air at all and actually see the progress of it all? Uh, I saw some drone footage earlier of the, the Grand River going through Brantford, and it's quite alarming to see the ice right up to the bridge. Uh, normally the bridge is a, a huge clearance between the river and the bridge, but right now the all the bridges crossing the, the river in Brantford have been closed, and there's a few uh, former railway bridges that have been converted to pedestrian bridges, and they're the ones that are actually the lowest, and you can see the, the ice bumping right up against them in the drone footage that I saw. Is there any way to control this ahead of time, Greg? Like if you see ice uh, dams building up that you can, you know, I don't know how you would take them out. Do you blast them? What do you do? How do you clear those things? Well, the, the ice jams can be dynamited. Uh, that has been done in the past. Uh, I'm not sure if that was considered in this or not. I, I put that question to, to staff. Unfortunately, they're quite busy. They haven't had a chance to answer my email yet. But it is something that, that can be monitored in that respect. Uh, other than that, the GRCA has several reservoirs that were at winter lows, so they're absorbing whatever runoff upstream of those dams they can and filling the reservoirs. But the rest of the runoff downstream from those all flows into the river and then creates problems for us. So uh, once this actual flow goes through and hopefully things subside after a, a, an hour or two, are you expecting any more problems beyond that? Well, a lot of that depends on the weather. If we get a huge rainstorm come through after this, it's still going to be a problem. Until the ice jam in Brantford breaks up and flows down, the river levels are going to be high, and an increased flow from a heavy rainfall upstream is going to cause problems. So obviously the rain that we've received over the last little bit hasn't helped this scenario at all. Well, that's what's caused it. It's yeah. the warm temperature melting all the snow in addition to the rain that's come down. How the long works at melting the snow very quickly too. And and how long had the uh, ice dam or jam been there? How long does that take for that something like that to build up? Well, it's been a, a pretty cold winter, so the ice in the river has built up thick over the years. And when we had a, a warming spell a little while ago, it started to break up. When it flows down, when it hits a bottleneck, it jams up and builds up the dam. Right. Now, what about uh, anybody beyond you? Are they in as much uh, of a precarious situation as you guys are in right now? I believe there's another jam up down near Caledonia. There's some problems in that area as well. Uh, after the surge passes Brantford, Six Nations is going to be the next area that's hit with Caledonia and and Six Nations area. And we've already notified them and, and offered any assistance that we can once uh, they run into the problems. The only but advantage they got there is because it is a little wider that the, the water will have a chance to spread out and not rise quite so high, but it's still going to be a problem all the way, the rest of the way down the river until we get to the lake. 
All right, guys. So obviously, the next few hours are uh, will tell the tale here is what uh, what happens in Brantford. Greg uh, Martin has been with us, Ward Three Councillor, City of Brantford, dealing with flooding up there due to uh, uh, an ice jam that started up near Cambridge. And uh, around two o'clock this afternoon, things should peak. Greg, good luck up there, and uh, we'll keep abreast of what's going on. Thank you. We appreciate your time. All right. Take care. Greg Martin, Ward 3 Councillor, City of Brantford. Two o'clock this afternoon is when they're expecting the uh, the highest water to go through that area. Uh, scary situation when you think about it. And, and considering that uh, you sort of know it's coming, you have time to prepare is great. But on the other hand, um, you wonder what you could do at, you know, to try to stop this. If it is preventable, I don't know. Considering the rain and uh, just the, the, the warm temperatures that we've been having of late. Let's bring in Rebecca DeMaz, Brantford resident. She is with us. Rebecca, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. No problem. Uh, you, we're at Soup Fest, so uh, we'll send some warm, hearty soup your way somehow just to uh, <laughs> help things if we can. So tell us what happened. What, how has this affected you, Rebecca? Uh, well, we got a message first thing this morning saying that my daughter's school was under flood warning so that they would not, not, would not be going. So I was like, what is that? Like, we don't even close down for snowstorms. That's... That's interesting. So, uh, ha- have you ever had this happen before? Never. Um, actually, I'm totally shocked. My husband was making jokes at me this morning, thinking that I was overreacting. I was packing our clothes and toothbrushes. I'm like, we gotta get out of here. So, uh, so what did you take? You're out of the house now. Yes, I'm out at my cousin's house right now. And uh, what what do you do to your home? How do you leave it? Um. <laughs> Well, you start picking up things and putting them on the counter? Oh, I, the way it was, pretty much, yeah. Like, I was making my daughter's lunch when we got the message saying that she wasn't going to school. So everything that was out for that just got, got tossed in a bag and out the door with us. <laughs> wow. So do you know if the power or the gas has been shut off to your home at all? Um, we had lost power first thing this morning as well. Um, so that happened right before we ended up getting evacuated. So, uh, so, but I made sure everything was turned off before we had left that we could do. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm panicking a little bit. I've never been in a situation like this. I don't know what to expect. I don't know if our house is actually going to be affected or not affected. I know that we were in the area of being evacuated and going that way. Does anything look odd right now? How does it look when you left, or how did it look? Well, when did when did you leave? What time did you leave? I we got out of the house about 8:45 this morning. Um, I took my husband to work, which he's still at work, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it took us 25 minutes to get across the Lauren Bridge in my vehicle. Really? That was before the bridges were closed. Right. Um, when we arrived in St. George, that's when we had heard that the bridges were officially closed. Wow. Yeah. Have, um, did, did, you, did anybody realize that this was happening, that there was a, an ice jam farther up towards Cambridge? I mean, it, it, had you been notified of that? At that point in the morning, no. Mm. I had heard that the, well, the water they were afraid was going to overflow in Brantford, but I didn't know that it had gone down as far as Cambridge. So did they tell you how long you would have to remain out? No, and I literally only packed for one night. I've never done this, and now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I need more stuff. Oh no. So, and I'm guessing if they go in and shut off utilities, it would take a while for that to get started up again anyway, would it not? It's not like, okay, water's down, let's go back home. Have they met, Have they said anything like that at all to you? 
Um, nothing was, was said about how long it was going to take or what the procedures were after we're allowed to go back or even when we can go back. So I'm, I'm not sure. I have a lot of questions that are not answered right now. So we understand that the, the water will peak at around 2 o'clock this afternoon, and, and, and then at that point it will be at, at, at its highest level. Uh, yeah. You're far enough away from all of this now? Um, I thought so until I seen that Highway 24 was closed down um, out towards Cambridge. But I think I think we're good where we are in St. George. I don't think we're going to get anything out here. And uh, do, are you feeling that you're getting the information that you need? Uh, how difficult has that been? I mean, obviously, this is a fluid story, no pun intended. It's changing dramatically. I just talked to Greg Martin, the Word 3 counselor. Uh, are, are you being informed as you should or how you feel? Uh, what are your thoughts on any of this? Or is everybody um, just making the best of a bad situation? kind of making the best of a bad situation right now <laughs> yeah and uh what is how does the family feel about this do the do the kids know what's going on or anything um no they just i don't think they really understand what it means i don't think i really understand what it means either to be honest with you i've never been in this situation or even had flood warnings before so for me i don't think that they understand they're having a good time right now they just think it's a snow day type thing right are you expecting to sleep in your own bed tonight no no what about tomorrow? I hope so, but I have no idea. Well, good so luck, Rebecca. Going, I'm really not sure. So, uh, any advice to anyone who's farther down that might be getting ready for this? Just pack more than a night of clothes. Pack more than a night of clothes, and just just take what you need. Just get your animals to safety, get your kids to safety, and don't be stubborn. There's a lot of people out there that are saying, "No, we're not going to evacuate." It's not a time to pretend to be a hero or try and stay safe. I mean, people risk their lives saving people, and they don't need to. Good so point. Stubborn people like that. Rebecca Dumos has been with us, Brantford resident. Rebecca, good luck. We'll be watching. Thank you. All right, take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. You know, we heard a lot uh, in the last election about the middle class. It seemed that everybody was catering to the middle class. It seemed that everybody was trying for the middle class vote and that the middle class was going to be the big winner uh, after the next election. However, uh, it seems that the uh, the, uh, middle class doesn't feel that they're being looked after, that they feel it is shrinking, that it's harder for them to get along, and that uh, they're working harder and, and not getting as much for that. And in fact, a lot of people are having a hard time staying in the middle class. Uh, and they're wondering, um, are we really trying to increase the middle class by making it bigger and better? Or are we increasing the middle class just by lowering the standards and uh, letting others in? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. And if I could send you some soup, Ian, I would. It's beautiful. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we hear this a lot, especially around election time, and I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll hear it again in the next couple of years as the next ones ramp up. Uh, it-, it seems this time out there was way more effort to concentrate on the middle class. Is that true, or has it always been the case? Uh, there's more effort there's, um, uh, to f- focus on the middle class because one of the parties decided, and that's perfectly legitimate, to come up with their own political strategies. They decided that they had uh, something they could sell to differentiate themselves from the other parties. I mean, political parties, in a sense, are not that different from companies trying to sell you a cell phone or a car. They're trying to tell you that their cell phone or their car is better than the other guy. So come and buy my cell phone or my package or my car and not the other guy. Um, But when you actually look, and I've I've published on this, 
Scott. I've studied the data uh, for a long time, and the data in Canada and the United States and Europe, the uh, high-income Western countries, is excellent because we have very, very good data going back to at least the end of the Second World War. Some would say we have it all the way back to the beginning of Tashkent. And it is, I'm going to probably annoy some of your listeners, it is a gigantic urban legend that we are collapsing or falling out of the middle class and we're going to hell in a handcart and we're soon going to be reduced eating dog food and cat food. We are wealthier than we've ever been. This is hard data, not theory, based on where. And I've actually had people write me and say, oh, I don't trust those statistics. Well, we get the data on income in Canada. StatsCan gets it, the aggregated data from an organization called the CRA. That's the people that all of us file our taxes to. So unless we assume that most of us are lying and cheating in when we file our tax returns, which I do not believe, by the way, I do not believe that because most of us are wage earners like me and you, and I don't fill out my own T4 to send to revenue, uh, our CRA. My employer does. And so the stats on income in Canada and income inequality are based on hard data based on so tax returns. So why, and we've heard this, why do the stats say that, and they obviously do globally, why doesn't it feel that way? And, and is it because we're doing better globally, we don't necessarily feel it as, you know, on an individual level? I mean, you know, we, we hear about the houses that people are buying, this, that, and right. the other. But are they, why are they not feeling that way? I, I, I'm going to, now I'm getting, we're getting really into the realm almost of political psychology um, uh, because it is not supported factually, statistically, uh, actually. It's not. Uh, but your question is, well, then why? If that's the case, why do people feel like it? Uh, I think it's partly our expectations. It's, it's, it, I call it the disease of, of affluence and success. That the more affluent and successful we become, does that satisfy us? Hell no. We want more. We want more. Or and is that ability to earn just slowing down? No, no, it's not. Empirically, it's So not. wages aren't staggering. That's stagnating. They are not. They're stagnating. Fact, people listening to this, when they get to a computer, can Google uh, Philip Cross on this, the former senior assistant chief statistician at StatsCan has published on this using the data, and that is simply not true. So is Stephen Gordon at the Laval has published on this, showing that incomes have gone up, not down, up. But what's happened, I think, Scott, is our expectations, are, are, I mean, the expectations of my parents, all you have to do is look at houses in this country. I just renovated my house. This house is an old house, 100 years old. In those days, bedrooms were 10 by 10. Mm. And you'd put two or three people in the bedroom, and you thought that was okay. Today, that's absolutely unacceptable. So if we put five people into a room in the old days, then three, then two, then one, exactly. why can't we, so are we not being able to move into a bigger room by ourselves? In other words, it seems that we don't, we're not able to make those gains as easily as we have in the past. Well, if and and at, is it because we've hit our limit? That, what more but, do you expect? Scott, your middle I class. I don't agree with that. I mean, if you look at any metric, people can say, I don't trust those income figures from mm-hmm. CRA. I think it's nonsense to say that, but okay, some people say that. So let's look at another metric, another measure, and that is average house size. They, it has gone up steadily every decade for 100 years. If you go back uh, to the turn of the century in 1900, or even go back to the end of the First World War, houses were way, way smaller. 
in Ottawa, and I'm sure they have them in Hamilton, we had so-called wartime housing. Yep. It was actually not wartime. It was built after the war. These were 800-square-foot houses. We've got them all over Ottawa. 800 square feet. Today, it's unthinkable to build a house of 800 square yeah, feet. Yeah, that's a sunroom. Uh, that's a sunroom. <laughs> so, but what about the next generation, Ian? What about the millennials coming up that can't afford this house that their parents had? They're saying, and again, here's more hearsay, but is it accurate that this generation will not have what its parents have. So uh, now, now, okay, now we're changing the, the, the question, which is perfectly good, and I'm glad you're doing that. Um, and, and I think you're now raising a very important point. My generation, the boomers, and I'm a boomer right in the middle of the, the baby boom, defined as those born between 1945 and 1963 or 65. So I'm sort of smack dab in the middle. We have... Uh, statistically and factually and empirically, because StatsCan measures this, we have a large share of the wealth in Canada. Uh, the millennials have a much smaller share, but that points to something that's going to happen over the next 2, 5, 10, 12, 15, 20 years. It's going to be the largest transfer of wealth in human history in Europe, Canada, the rich countries. And governments are getting ready for that. Yes, they are. Because they I want mean, a piece of that. You, without going into the details, because I'm not going to do that, I can just tell you, all my wealth is going to my two children. I only have two children. Mm-hmm. And they're going to get it all in my will. Now, hopefully it's not going to happen for a long time, but they're gonna, I'm going to pass it on to all of them to them. I'm not saying every parent is doing that, but I have seen the BMO, uh, pension wealth studies, and other um, financial institutions have surveyed, and the vast majority of the boomers are passing on most of their wealth to their children. So they're going to, at some point, when mom and dad kick the bucket, when they pass on, they're going to inherit... uh, Now, someone will say, well, not everybody owns a home. True. 70% of Canadians own a home, one of the highest rates in the world, by the way. And so there's going to be an enormous wealth transfer. It's not going to help the poorest of the poor. They're at the bottom because they're poor and they typically came from poor families. So they will remain there, but the, the kids, the children of the middle class and the upper middle class are going to eventually have a huge transfer of wealth that's going to go to them, mostly. So kids will be as wealthy as their parents, but by the time they are, they'll be senior citizens. But, but they will be. <laughs> that's a very good point. But think about that, Ian, because people no, are right, living longer right, and God, longer, right? right? <laughs> I mean, it depends how long. We're living longer than ever. Yeah. Um, you know, there's now, we have lots of octogenarians in this country living mm. into their 80s, and my late mother passed away at 92, wow. living on her own. That's very, very common today. Men are living into their 80s, which is just unheard of only 30 years ago. And so that wealth transfer is going to take effect. And these are, the millennials may not get this wealth until they're literally 50 or 55 or 60. But they, the, the, the money it will be there one day, but it's not there now. So what happens to the millennials? Are they struggling for the first half of their life and then we'll see the payoff in the second half? What happens to maybe even their kids or the ones that are between whatever the millennial is yeah. and the next group yeah. after that? Um, you know, uh, what, do they have to wait till the baby boomers are completely out of the system before they, the pendulum starts to I swing want back? To, I, I don't want, I'm, I, I'm going to agree with you but sort of disagree and I, I want to make this clear. Some of the millennials. We cannot generalize and say all the millennials. I mean, I, I see my students. We track our students. And people coming out of STEM, so-called STEM, mm-hmm. science, technology, engineering, management, they're doing very well. But and, not everybody's the, in the STEM course. But not everybody. You just took the words out of my mouth. Not everybody's graduating with STEM. 
So when you hear about the person complaining in the Globe and Mail, he says, I've got three degrees and I'm a barista at Starbucks. Mm. Well, I did go and interview that person. I haven't seen his CV. But I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that the millennials you do hear about, this, I'm not uh, criticizing them for this, but you'll find that they have degrees or, or schooling in areas where the demand is lower and where the wages are lower. Those people coming out with engineering degrees and MBAs and finance degrees and science degrees and computer science degrees, they're getting very, very good job offers, and they're moving up the ladder. I talked to them here in Ottawa in the, in the technology sector of the city. I talked to people, my, some of my former students who went to the banks, and they're doing very well. So we cannot write off and say all the millennials are doing badly. That's not true, but there's a good chunk they're not doing as well as their parents, and I will fully acknowledge that. They're the ones who are going to have to wait. They're going to end up waiting uh, until they get their inheritance, whereas the others who went into high-demand, uh, skilled areas where the wages are high, they're, go- they're already doing very well. What will be the next great generation? What will be the next generation that feels the opportunity? Are those kids 10 now? Are those kids 15 now? I'm, I've, I said this, you know, it's, it's fascinating you're asking these questions because I have these conversations every year in the last class with my students. And, and I tell them, you know, now these are in BCom, okay, so they're going off half yeah. of them into banks and into accounting firms and so forth, okay, so they're, they're already the, let's be blunt, the privileged uh, group. Yeah. But I've said to them, you know, your generation, you're the millennials, there's a lot less of you. Yeah. And we are going to be running very, very soon into labor shortages as the rest of the boomers exit. There's no question about that. Every economist, statistician, demographer says so. I said the good news is you guys are not going to have unemployment problems. You're going to get paid very, very good wages um, down the road as the shortages uh, become more and more uh, uh, clear and they have to bid up wages to, to attract uh, labor. I said, that's the good news. The bad news is you're going to be paying down the road, and the IMF is mm. forecasting this, and so is the OECD, mm. significant, significant increases in, in taxes because the cost of looking after the boomers uh, when they become elderly is going to be staggering because of health care, not the pensions. People think it's the pensions. It isn't. It's the health care. Health care is vastly more expensive for elderly people than pensions. And uh, the CHI-HI data, which is the Canadian Institute of Health Information set up by Paul Martin, shows that the average 85-year-old, now not everybody makes it to 85, I get that, but just to give you an idea of what we're talking about, the average 80-plus-year-old 80, uh, 80 in Canada consumes $25,000 a year of health care. That's not a theory out there for people out in radio land. That's hard data from the Canadians to the health information, tracking it. As we get older, plus 75, 80 and up, we start to consume gargantuan amounts of health care. And that's what's going to become unbelievably expensive. That's what the PBO is talking about when they say that provincial governments are unsustainable down the road, not today, but down the road, because it's the provincial governments that are carrying health care, and they're going to turn around and pass it on in higher, much higher taxes to the millennials. So as the boomers exit, I think the problems of their saying, look, we can't get good jobs, it's going to go away, this problem. It's going to recede year by year by year. 
and as the, and I'm seeing it all in my own. Thing. When will the when will the health costs start to subside? Because obviously, as as the baby boomers uh, retire and 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 move on, you know, as senior citizens and such, that will create more employment for those yes. below them. Yes. When will that pendulum swing back as far as health care? Because lots are saying we need to build, 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 build right yeah. now. But once the swath makes it through, then well, there'll be an then there'll be an abundance. Let me just throw a quick big again. I like big picture numbers because I think it helps um, illuminate the the issue. We're, the uh, the seniors uh, are about ten percent, twelve percent of the population, and um, Sorry about that. And uh, they're about 10% of the uh, 10, 12% of the population. In the next 15 years, the elders, defined as over 65, is going to double yeah. to 25% of Canada. And, and that's Florida, by the way. That is Florida mm. today. Mm. People say, oh my goodness, Florida is just filled with old people. Well, Florida, one in four are over 65. The rest of North America is going to look like Florida in about 15, 20 years. Mm. And, and so when one in four are consuming much larger amounts, and I'm not criticizing elders for consuming health care, if anybody out there is thinking I'm going there, I'm going to become a senior very, very soon. And, and I'm already consuming more health care than I did when I was 30 or 35. And so I'm doing exactly what the statistics say are, are going to happen. And, and that burden, burden, though, is going to fall on our young people mm. because... They're working, and they're they're the people that pay the taxes. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. As the boomers leave the workforce, that's going to create more and more opportunities, and and they're going to move up the ladder more and more quickly and get into those nice, uh, better-paying jobs. But the downside is because there's so many mm. boomers, yeah. because it'll be a quarter of the totality of the country that they're going to consume large amounts of health care, and, and that is the crisis that's going to... That's what millennials will be talking about, I predict, Scott, about 10 years from now. They won't be talking about how they're, you know, they've got lousy jobs. They're going to be talking about the enormous increase in the taxation needed to look after dear old uh, mom and dad uh, in, in homes or in hospitals or wherever. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, let's move on uh, and talk everything from uh, Ontario politics, I guess, to U.S. politics. Let's bring in Michael Tobe. Michael Tobe, of course, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. All right, there's lots to talk about, as there always is every time we have... You mean more than soup? Okay, Oh, man, I don't know. You know what, Michael? I just like to hang up the phone and eat soup and forget about all of this. Can I give Liz Russell a shout-out very quickly for putting bacon in her soup? Because that's actually what I do typically with soup. That's great. Oh, you got to come down here. There's some... Believe me, it isn't like Campbell's Chicken Noodle and Tomato down here. It's pretty decadent stuff. You know, I've heard of this, but I've never gone yet. You'll want to eat these with a fork, believe me. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, so there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. Before we get to Trump, your thoughts on what's unfolding with the Progressive Conservative Party. This started with allegations in Patrick Brown of sexual misconduct. Now we're talking about corruption and, and mismanagement of, of funds. And, and they're even yeah. asking where he got the dough to, to buy his house. Yes. How do you explain all this? <laughs> I'm having trouble explaining it as much as most progressive conservatives or conservatives in general are explaining it. Are um, they shooting themselves in the foot here? Well, look, I mean, I, you know, in a political party... 
there obviously are going to be forces that are both in favor of leadership and opposed to leadership. I mean, that's just the way politics is played out. The difference typically is, Scott, is that when a leader is chosen, generally speaking, people coalesce around him or her, and they tend to be as supportive as they possibly can be, even if behind the scenes they don't really care for certain policies, until that leader leaves the scene and then all hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. What is happening here is the leader basically, this, in this case Patrick Brown, left much, much earlier on a very, you know, on a, a very much a dark cloud of controversy that most leaders don't usually have or have to deal with before they exit the political scene. And for that reason, based on the leadership race that is currently going on right now, plus, as you alluded to, Patrick Brown re-entering this race, and in about an hour's time, he'll know officially whether he's been greenlit by the nomination committee of the Ontario PCs to press forward, which, by the way, is not the end of the story right there and then, because then it actually can move on to the executive committee, of which most of those people are not only supportive of him, but have already written a letter a few days ago stating that he should be in the race in the first place. So the whole discussion that we're having may be moot in the grand scheme of things, but because of all that's going on, plus the Patrick Brown affair, which is really sucking up most of the airtime, not only for the Ontario PCs, but for Ontario politics in general, hmm. it's just been a tsunami, as I called in my recent column, and not a very pleasant one at that. So will Patrick Brown be allowed to run for this leadership? Is it better with him out than in or in than out? It is better if he does run. And this is not <clears throat> dismissing anything that's being discussed about him and whether you believe he's completely innocent or totally guilty. In the grand scheme of things, the mess that could be created or the hornet's nest that could be opened if Patrick Brown doesn't run or isn't allowed to run or is blocked from running completely would just be a complete and utter disaster because Patrick Brown, whether you like him or not, actually did bring in a lot of new members to this party. And yes, I know that the original number of 200,000 was discredited a while ago. Even the number 185 or 185,000 was also discredited. We can certainly say with confidence, because of what interim leader Vic Fideli said recently, it's about 134,000. The party was about 12,000 members when Brown became leader in 2015. So you have to assume that of the 122,000 people who came in, some of them may have picked up Ontario PC membership cards because they didn't like Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals, that's fair to say, but a lot of them probably joined because they liked Patrick Brown, they liked his message, they ultimately liked the People's Guarantee, the policy document that the party will run on in some way, shape, or form after everything is done. And for that reason, um, I think the difficulty is that you know that obviously not every single person of the 122,000 are going to go back and, and run back into Patrick Brown's camp because of what's happened. But you have to assume that a lot of them will remain loyal. And on social media, that's typically what we're seeing, that nominated candidates and members who came into the party because of Patrick Brown's leadership at the time, a lot of them will float back to him, which makes it very difficult for Christine Elliott, Doug Ford, Caroline Mulrooney, even Tanya Granick-Allen to sort of keep certain clumps that they have picked up in Patrick Brown's absence. And that makes him really, quite frankly, a player. And that means that, believe it or not, after all that is said and done and all the controversy that we're seeing, including Randy Hillier's um, complaint to the Integrity Commissioner, which you sort of alluded to, which talks about his mortgage deal and various other things, 
don't be terribly shocked if at the end of all this, Patrick Brown either wins by a little bit or loses by a little bit, but he won't be swarmed and he won't be swamped in this race. He's going to have a real chance at it. So is this airing of the family's dirty laundry or is this rot with corruption as Vic Fidelli alluded to? I think it's a little bit of both and I I don't actually think that Vic Fidelli is wrong that there is rot in the party simply because we've just seen a lot of things come out from the party president's resignation and other things and even these allegations that Randy Hillier has put forward and whether you love or you hate Randy Hillier he obviously serves a purpose and a role that, say, you know, former um, Ontario PC MPPs like Chris Stockwell, who just passed away recently, the former Speaker of the House, or even Wild, old Wild Bill Murdoch way back in Owen Sound, those individuals actually served a role as the people who were kind of pushing the party along, the little tugboats that moved it along in the right direction. That's what Hillier is trying to do in this case. Clearly, he is frustrated by the stories that he's heard about Patrick Brown, and he obviously has put them all directly into a complaint, and it's pretty profound if your listeners haven't found it. It's, list, it's on social media, you can easily get it, and it's quite astonishing to look at. But it's also true that Randy Hillier can be a rabble-rouser, and that's how Patrick Brown is trying to discredit it, which is the right way to play it. And also at the same time, Patrick Brown is basically saying, I'm on my own mission, and I want to redeem my reputation, I want to regain the Ontario PC leadership, and I want to win in June for the provincial election, and I don't want to be derailed by all these quote-unquote stories going on behind the scenes. So that's kind of how it all kind of plays out. But is it a, is it a combination of both? Yes, because there is some dirty laundry being aired. There's no question about that. We're seeing it based on the way Ontario PC members are fighting inside and outside the party on a whole variety of issues. But is there rot? I think there's rot in every single party, whether, whether people who are active like to admit it or not. So Vic Fideli isn't completely wrong. There is some, but I don't think it's more one than the other. Will this, any of this, and I, and I want to move on to Trump here, but will any of this matter uh, come June, or will this be another scenario where they shoot themselves in the foot in the dying moments of this election? a good question. Unfortunately, I hate to admit it, they've shot themselves in the foot in a lot in the last three elections. Um, Tim Hudak had a couple of chances to win, and unfortunately, due to some policy decisions or statements that were made, things just didn't work out properly. It looked like the machine was a little bit more well-oiled this time, up until three weeks ago, when the whole thing just sort of came tumbling down. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to say right now. I think the real key is who comes out ahead in the leadership contest, which will be decided March the 10th. And then from there, he or she, that being the winner of that contest, will have to somehow figure out how to clean up this mess, get the party focused on the policies that matter, which are included in the People's Guarantee, and anything that he or she wishes to bring from the outside, or remove from the People's Guarantee, like getting rid of the carbon tax, which are from the policy plan, which I think would be beneficial to them. I think that would probably settle things down a bit and would hopefully make members feel a bit more comfortable in the choice they made. But again, the trick for it, not to sound like a broken record, you have to have Patrick Brown in that leadership race for closure. If you don't have him in the race and he, lo- and he just basically runs off and basically runs his own little independent campaign, the media is going to follow him everywhere. If he runs in the leadership race and wins or loses, 
that ends the story, and then we can, the Ontario PCs can move forward to the more important issue and pressing issue, which is kicking the Liberals out of government. All right, let's move to Trump. Uh, over the weekend, Russians uh, accused of uh, in the Mueller investigation. How is Trump playing this now different from what he did prior to this weekend? You know, it's interesting. A lot of people are speculating that he's going to do things differently, but if you look at the way he's sounded or discussed things, or at least tweeted about it sort of sparingly, it's really much business as usual in Washington. I don't see a huge difference. And I think the rationale is this, Scott. Robert Mueller has obviously been working for months to get those long-awaited indictments. He wanted to make an example of someone doing something. And with the exception of a few Trump associates or former staffers having admitted to, you know, one count of fraud because they lied to the FBI, that's really all that we've actually seen during this whole time. So the special counsel's office, which Mueller heads, had to come up with something that would be beneficial <clears throat> to the party, uh, well, sorry, uh, to the government uh, and to the way that Washington runs on a day-to-day basis. He needed to come up with something important when it came to the Russia investigation. These 13 indictments, yes, he deserves credit for at least proving that Russians did try to meddle in the U.S. election. But here's the thing, Scott. We already knew that. Yeah, the yeah. FBI and CIA discussed yeah. this months ago and confirmed it. The only thing is... Yeah, but everybody seemed to accept it except Trump. Maybe this is just a final... Uh, so Trump well, understands it. Uh, perhaps so. No, in, in fair point. You may absolutely be right. But at the same time, the FBI and CIA also confirmed what the special counsel's office actually confirmed in their report, too. That, yes, there was meddling by Russia, but it didn't change the result of the 2016 yeah. presidential election. And that's election. always been known, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, that's, one that's one more really quick key. question. Uh, sure. Do you think we'll see any movement on gun control this time? The students seem to be behind this. Uh, do yep. they hold weight here, especially considering it won't be that long before they can vote? Exactly. I think a bit. Uh, what has certainly happened is, as you've probably noticed and you may have discussed on your radio show, is that Donald Trump is now actually going to move to get rid of that little device yeah. that you can lock onto a gun, which changes it from a normal weapon to an automatic weapon, or semi-automatic if you'd like. So, it, so he basically is worried about machine guns being created out of guns themselves. Mm. That is probably the one little fix that I think would be very easy for Republicans and Democrats to agree upon, because a lot of people have been very critical about that in the first place. Even the NRA, who tends to be pretty strong-willed about most issues, they've actually kind of left that one alone for the most part. And I can sort of understand why, because it's a dicey issue. But will there be movement? Yes, and not just necessarily because of the kids, although obviously they have a voice. I think it's because America realizes that, like me, they prob- most of them believe that gun rights are an issue of property rights. Many Americans don't believe in gun control. I don't believe in gun control. At the same time, though, the vetting process for getting a weapon has always been a bit of a challenge and a controversy. Mm. Some states like Virginia, it's exceptionally easy to get. It's almost like snapping your fingers, where it's, it's a bit stricter in other states. There has to be some measure to ensure that people who want to get guns go through a proper vetting process and not just this 10, 20-minute scam of, hi, here I am, click, click, click when we're done. It has to be real. And for that reason, I think things will change on guns, Scott, especially with this little device, because that's the way to at least make some parts of society right. feel more safe and secure 
if we're going to protect in the United States the Second Amendment. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Enjoy the soup. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.